we're still talking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, namely mental content, the content of mind. And so far we've looked at the hindrances and at the seven factors of enlightenment. And the question is, have I got them or haven't I got them? Have I got a hindrance or haven't I? Have I got one of the factors of enlightenment or haven't I? And this is um, one of the, of course, very analytical and detailed way of knowing oneself, which comes with more mindfulness as we practice. And now we come to another possibility of examining one's mind content. And it is actually, anyway, one of my favorite topics, namely Dukkha. And because it is the essence and kernel of the Buddha's teaching, it needs to be examined very carefully. The Buddha did not say mental content dukkha, but the four noble truths can be a mental content. And the four noble truths, the first three. First one is the noble truth of dukkha. Second one, the noble truth of the cause for dukkha. And third one, the noble truth of the elimination of all dukkha, which is Nibbana. So never mind the third one, because that's going to be a theoretical uh, understanding and explanation, which at this point in time is not suitable. We will have some pointers and directions, but as far as the noble truths are concerned, the first two, the noble truths of Dukkha, which only has one cause, which only has wanting as its cause, craving, which means both greed and hate. The total um, aspect of not being contented and satisfied, wanting it different and justifying that, of course. Now, if something is wrong somewhere along the line and one can change it, fine. But that's not what we usually do. What we usually do is having dukkha and then trying to find an outside cause. So the most popular way of dealing with it is to blame somebody else for our own dukkha. That's a popular parlor game and it shows itself in all different ways. doesn't necessarily have to be only it's somebody else's fault. It can be some general situation. And uh, as I mentioned the other day, for instance, the dukkha aspect comes out in when people scream, I hate war, I want peace. Well, dukkha, you know, somebody's fault that there's war. It's got nothing to do with the person that's screaming, apparently. So 
the dukkha is being laid outside of oneself. Usually one uses that which is nearest, physically nearest. And if one has recognized that that doesn't work very well because it creates a terrible atmosphere, then one uses somebody who's a little further away, not constantly available in the same house, just a little bit further, only comes maybe once a week or something like that. And uh, with that kind of thing, then blaming that person isn't too bad because the atmosphere doesn't get polluted the whole week, just that particular day when that person is there. Now, this parlor game of blaming somebody else is so widespread and so natural to everybody that nobody really pays attention on, to this until mindfulness is established. Mindfulness of one's own mental state. We also have, of course, other ways of dealing with it. Not always blaming oneself. We can, uh, others, we can blame ourselves. That's another one, another popular one. And then, of course, when we blame ourselves, we create more dukkha. We then, in the process of blaming ourselves, also look for a scapegoat outside of ourselves. I'm so terrible because my mother didn't understand me. So I am terrible. I've got this blame to myself, but I'm blaming the mother at the same time. So it's not, it's double, triple, quadruple dukkha. The whole thing just mounts up to the point where there is actually such a convolution in the mind and so much um, creation, fantasy creation, that nothing is being seen properly anymore. So we have others to blame, we have ourselves to blame, non nothing helps, of course. It makes Dukkha worse. And then we have other ways of doing it. We're sorry for ourselves. Poor little me, look at all the Dukkha I've got. And uh, when we do that, of course, we look for outside sources also. That's creating Dukkha. And then we have other ways. We have, from that being sorry for oneself, the next step is depression. And that, of course, can go so deep that it becomes clinical. That also happens. Most of the time it doesn't become a clinical problem. It stays on a level where we are capable of distracting ourselves from our dukkha. Now, this is another very popular parlor game, distraction. That's why television is a must for everybody because it is the distraction par excellence. All you have to do is press a button and there it goes. And you can see other people's dukkha. You don't have to think of your own dukkha. It's somebody else's. Wonderful. And uh, then there are many other ways of distraction. Telephones, radios, movies, novels, uh, whatever one can think of. Traveling. One has to think so much about how to get from here to there that one can't remember one's dukkha. So these distractions are something that we also, of course, um, become so habituated to that it continues in the meditation. Distraction, distracting the mind. We want to distract it. So it keeps on being distracted. And... We, ha we hardly ever, if ever, recognize the real cause of dukkha. 
if anybody ever recognizes it, he probably has heard the Buddha's teaching and has for one moment actually believed it. Otherwise, it is something that we just don't want to know about. The real cause is that we want something. And particularly, we don't want it the way it is. We want it different. And that is the continuation, the constancy of Dukkha. We never like it the way it is. We always have other ideas. If we were to like it the way it is, we would be completely and utterly contented completely and utterly satisfied, we wouldn't have anything that is lacking or missing. And once we come to that point, of course, if there's nothing lacking or missing, we have wishlessness. Now, obviously, that's possible in the meditative state. I have mentioned it as one of the features of the third uh, meditative absorption, but unfortunately, the meditative absorptions are also impermanent. So coming out of them, the least one wants is to have it again. Dukkha. Now that needs to be examined and experienced for oneself. Because the explanation of this is totally opposed to the natural understanding that people have. They don't understand, nobody does, that dukkha is because of wanting. We look at it just the other way. I've got dukkha, so I must want something to get rid of it. And the more I get, the less dukkha I'll have. It's just the other way around. It's totally upside down. And because of that, because everybody thinks, oh yes, I've got some dukkha, I'm not totally satisfied, so I must get this, I must get that, I must get him, must get her must get the jhanas, must get uh, whatever it is that one has now figured out that one must get, and that creates the dukkha. Now we must actually practice in ourselves, experience, how dukkha arises and how it ceases. And the way to do that is to have anything at all in the mind that one isn't completely satisfied with, anything that one wishes different. And then as one wishes it different, to recognize in the mind that there's a certain anxiety whether we're going to get it different, there's a certain movement in the mind which is not pleasant because the mind is beset by that wanting. So the mind has no time for peace and quiet enjoy. It can't have everything all at once. It can either have one or the other. So with that, in the mind, which is not totally peaceful and harmonious because it's wanting, with that, <coughs> recognizing that that is exactly what dukkha means. Dukkha does not mean tragedies. That's also dukkha. But it doesn't mean that. It means the dissatisfaction. And then dropping at that moment whatever it is that we're wanting that we haven't got just <coughs> dropping it right then and there and even if it's only for one minute half a minute, one second 
And that one second is a second without dukkha. Everything is fine. Don't want anything. Now, if we don't do that, we'll never know what dukkha means. That is the, that is the antidote for dukkha. Dropping the wish. Whatever the wish might be, it may be something totally justifiable, like wanting the jhanas, or wanting to become enlightened and not being enlightened, obviously, and wanting to get it. The mind is not joyous, the mind is not peaceful, the mind is, has movement in it, and when one drops that, it says, this is the way it is. The mind is at peace and then can work towards that, which is this trying to change in itself. But usually we want quite different things. We want it cold when it's hot. We want it hot when it's cold. We want to eat. We want to drink. We don't want to eat. We don't want to drink. We want to lie down. We want to get up. We want to be appreciated. We want to be loved. We want to be understood. We want to be praised. The the list is... Uh, innumerably long there's no end to that list all the things we want which are totally justifiable everybody wants to be liked everybody wants to be loved everybody wants to be praised but it doesn't create anything for us other than dukkha now if we should get that what we want for a moment and we all do once in a while why not somebody loves us somebody praises us and it's there we feel good for that moment and then the moment is gone and then the mind immediately resurrects the same wanting unless we stop it from doing that but if we don't stop it if we don't pay any attention but just let things roll on as they keep rolling rolling along always in a circular movement the same thing over and over again Obviously, the same thing happens again. I want to be loved, I want to be liked, I want to be appreciated, I want to be praised. I want to be good, I want to be considered good. There's no end to this. Everybody has their own little scenario for that. And as we get it, it falls apart, and the mind has nothing else to do except wanting it again. So why the world is not at peace? Everybody can check up inside of themselves. <coughs> Nobody's at peace. That's why the world's not at peace. The only person that can ever have peace is a person that doesn't want anything. Nothing. Nothing at all. Everything one wants creates that unpleasant movement of reaching out, of trying to get, of trying to keep. Now, because we can't keep... We have to constantly want to get, or want to get rid of, of course. So when we have any kind of dislike in the mind of anything, whatever it may be, that is created by the fact that we want to get rid of something. Something that is obviously not creating a pleasant feeling. The only way we'll ever be able to be without wishes is if we accept pleasant and unpleasant feelings with the same equanimity. And that's why equanimity is the epitome of all emotions. 
Now, that doesn't mean that one can't do anything by chin in changing something that is obviously not working or that is obviously detrimental. Certainly one can change it, but without the emotional sting to it. That means equanimity. If one doesn't change anything anymore, one hasn't got any ability to change anything, one isn't working on oneself or on whatever it is that one is connected with. But the emotional reaction of the wanting to have, to get rid of, of wanting to keep, and then wanting to renew, that is the dukkha. And everybody's got it constantly, all day long, except for single moments. And the mindfulness of mental content means to recognize it. If we don't recognize that, that that dukkha goes on all day long, then the practice of the Dhamma and the meditation is a very nice hobby, much preferable to macrame or pottery, but that's all it is. It's a hobby. And the better one is at it, of course, the more one likes it, naturally. But if one sees in oneself, not because there is something particularly wrong with oneself, but that the mind creates dukkha all the time because of its inherent nature of wanting to have and wanting to get rid of, only then do we know what the Buddha talked about, that the noble truth of dukkha pervades the universe, all existence. Now there's more to this underlying factor of dukkha. If we become aware, and this is connected with watching our four mental aggregates, I don't think anybody's going to deny the fact that this body is dukkha. If we still haven't got around to that, then just imagine for a moment that you were doing this meditation course just with a mind without a body and then you'll know that the body is dukkha. And, but what we usually don't agree to or don't have any knowledge of or don't even have any uh, connection with is the fact that the four mental aggregates are dukkha. So the understanding of dukkha also refers to that which is another mental content, our aggregates sense contact, sense consciousness, the feeling which is generated, the perceiving and the thinking. Now the easiest is the thinking to recognize as dukkha. Everybody knows that thinking in meditation is dukkha. So why shouldn't it be outside of meditation also dukkha? One good reason. Why shouldn't it be always dukkha? Why is it only dukkha in meditation? No reason at all. It's always dukkha. And why is it always dukkha? Because it is movement, and all movement has friction, and all friction is unpleasant. Become aware of that yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the Buddha's word for it. The only thing to do with all that is to check it out so that one can actually say, Aha, that's right.
I thought it was, but now I know. And when we recognize the fact that thinking is dukkha, and we all pride ourselves on our brilliant thinking, whatever it may be, because we can think better than the dog and the cat and the, and the horse and the cow, so we're brilliant. And when we recognize that that is dukkha, then we have an understanding that really is meaningful of what dukkha is. You see, we think for one reason only, and that is for the protection of ego. Whether we think, now watch, check that out too. All thinking has as its base for an unenlightened person the protection and propagation of ego. Particularly in meditation, it's very easy to notice. That makes it really quite clear because if we didn't want the, if the ego wasn't so strong, the thinking would stop. We would be able to actually let go. As long as the ego is really strong, we can't let go. But in daily life, we have far greater justification system for our thinking. We've got to make a living. Well, who needs to make a living? For whom? Just check it out. For survival, obviously. Hmm? Well, who's going to survive? Anybody? Has anybody ever survived? So the while it is necessary to do so, we have to recognize the fact why we're doing all this. And maybe as we recognize why we're doing what we're doing, we may be able to change our direction a little bit so that it is less ego-directed and more realization-directed. And this means that we are actually aware of the dukkha which is created in all that we do. All of it is movement, therefore all of it is friction. All feeling is dukkha. If it's pleasant, it doesn't last. And if it's unpleasant, it's dukkha to start out with. Nothing can be found, and those are the Buddha's words, in the whole of the universe under any mode of existence that does not contain dukkha. And only when we accept that fully will we no longer push against dukkha, try to get rid of it by any means, try to eliminate it through worldly measures. Only when we have seen that there's no way that it can be removed through worldly measures. I mean, you can't stop thinking. There's no way we can do that. We can't stop feeling pleasant and unpleasant feelings. No way. And the existence that the Buddha talks about does not just mean people. That's the one we're concerned with. I mean, frankly speaking, everybody's concerned with their own existence and nobody else's. And we have a mode of conduct where we usually don't obstruct each other too much and when we do we start arguing about it so we're all concerned with our own personal existence and this is the way it is the Buddha agreed with that so we have to take our personal existence as the microcosm 
as the model. That's what it is. So where within this model of existence, and we need to look a little objectively at ourselves, where within that is there total peace and total delight? Not even in the meditative absorptions because they don't last either. They certainly put a cushion inside of oneself, but that's about it. And they have, of course, another um, ability. They have the ability of expanding the mind and making it pliable and malleable so that eventually the mind understands. It's not so easy to understand what the Buddha taught. Not the words, the words are simple, because it goes totally against our instincts and our impulses. Our instincts tell us continually, if something is wrong, I've got to get something to make it right. But in reality, if we have dukkha, we've got to let go of something. And this is something we should be trying out here. If there's anything in the mind that gives the mind any kind of disharmony, unpleasantness, anything at all, try to let go of whatever it is that is wanted and not available or available and not wanted. It's either one or the other. That's, there's no third choice. That's it. Just two choices. Either it's not available and wanted or it's not available, it, it, it's available and not wanted. That's all there is to it. So the, this trying that out in oneself shows one then that in the mode of living that human beings have, that we all have, there's no way of total, complete and utter peacefulness until the wanting has stopped. And the wanting will not stop completely until there's nobody there anymore to want anything. And that's the third noble truth, Nibbana. When there's nobody there to want anything, then whatever is wrong or right just needs to be attended to. But there's nobody attending to it. It just gets attended to. That's a big difference. Because, you see, ordinary people, when they do something, identify with that action. I'm doing it. I'm attending to something. I want it. I don't want it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to uh, not be in charge. Whatever it is, identification. And some people need a lot of identification systems until their lifestyle becomes overly busy. The difference between the person who has seen the third noble truth in themselves and an ordinary person is that outwardly it's the same business. Things get attended to, but no identification. And only then, of course, Dukkha has stopped. So that means transcending the mundane, the world. And it's said about the Arahant, the fully enlightened one, although touched by worldly circumstance, never their mind is wavering. So they live in the world, 
The Buddha lived in the world. But the mind doesn't get touched by it. It just acts. So the world as we know it is the playground. But if we identify with the toys that we play with, we're constantly in trouble because always somebody else wants the toys. So we identify primarily with body and mind. And even though you may have taken the body apart and seen its bits and pieces, yet when you walk along, you're still thinking, that's me walking here. Forget completely that that's only four elements or 32 parts of the body walking. So while the methods are fine, the result does not hinge on that method. Of course, we have to have some methods. But the results that one can get hinge on the inner understanding inside. The insight into the unsatisfactoriness of whatever there is. Now, there was one of the contemplations which said, may I be able to protect my own happiness? Well, have you figured out what your own happiness is? Is it always getting what you want? Is that your own happiness? And do you know exactly what you always want and always want to get again? So what is one's own happiness? Now in the connotation of the first and second noble truths, it is very important to figure that out. Sit down and contemplate what is my happiness. Not knowing anything, being totally unconscious. What is happiness? What does it mean? It's a very important contemplation and don't take these words that are being used for contemplations, these words that are used to explain mindfulness for granted. Every one of them means something. Means the depth of human existence to one day transcend that. Figure out what is my own happiness. And then see whether you can actually find it and if you can't find it then you know dukkha now dukkha only remains dukkha when we don't like it the minute we have accepted the fact that the human existence is dukkha then it's no longer longer unpleasant it just is and it gives the mind the impetus to transcend that it does not imbue the mind with a desire and a wish because a desire and a wish is something like pie in the sky the impetus that arises in the mind is the impetus to work at this transcending and that is the difference between having wishes and desires and the incentive to do. But only if we see that dukkha is all-pervading and then do not become upset about it, unhappy about it. 
but see it as a universal truth. Nobody has a personal monopoly, but lots of people think they do. Nobody's ever had it so bad as, this, as me or so difficult. And of course, with having it so difficult and so bad, how can I possibly do anything right because it's so difficult? Nobody's got a monopoly. Dukkha is one of the three characteristics of universal existence. And this existence bit includes everything, includes people and includes all realms of existence. Now, the Buddha talks about different realms of existence, 31 to be exact. And the human realm is the fifth from the bottom. So maybe that gives an understanding why things don't work as well as we would like them to work. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that we have to transcend um, or that we have to um, go through all the different realms in order to get anywhere. Nothing at all like that. The Buddha said that the human realm is the best one for becoming enlightened. And the best time for becoming enlightened is right now. There is no other. Because there is only now. If the mind becomes malleable, pliable, expandable, and sees a different reality in the meditative absorptions, it recognizes also the fact that time is an arbitrary human-made entity and does not exist the way we've got it figured out. That in reality, in universal existence, everything is there now. And that's it. We only have these things here, these clocks, so that we can meet at the proper time. In reality, there's no such thing. We've made it all up. In fact, we made most things up that we are concerned with. And we made them up because of our survival um, syndrome. And for the survival syndrome, we haven't done too badly because most of us are at least surviving babyhood and uh, get along a few decades. But that's about all we've managed. In reality, our real understanding of life and existence, it can be compared to being a baby. There's no reality to it. And all our philosophers and psychologists, all the rest of them, cannot match the Buddha's profound insights. And we can have them ourselves. There's no reason not to. So the first thing to do is to find out what is it that I'm trying to protect. What is my happiness that I'm trying to protect? And then after one has examined that, see whether dukkha is all-pervading or whether one has picked out one particular unpleasantness in one's life and have made a little um, sort of altar of it and said, if only I could get rid of this one, I'd be perfectly happy. That's what most people do. And then they get rid of that one. And then they make a new one. Now I've got to get rid of the next one. And the next one. And the next one. And we've been doing that for decades ever since childhood, not playing with that kid because that kid's not nice. We've been doing that all our lives. So this the second thing is, after having seen that it is really 
not possible to find a totality of happiness in all the measures and modes that we have used so far, then the acceptance comes that it can't be found within the worldly consciousness and then comes the understanding that there must be another kind of consciousness and that if one has any remembrance maybe of one Sunday school teachings that all religions talk about something like that which has nothing to do with blind faith or somebody sitting up there looking after it because obviously must be going on holiday a lot that it's something other in our own consciousness now our own consciousness is actually what triggers the 31 realms of existence it's a different kinds of consciousness and we've all had different kinds of consciousness in this lifetime already and we know that some of the consciousnesses we have are most unpleasant and others are quite acceptable and some are actually elevating so from that we can also infer even though we haven't had the highest kind of consciousness that there are higher consciousnesses now again the Buddha said sure there are there 31 realms of existence but there isn't a single realm which does not fall sway to the laws of nature of anicca dukkha anatta so to try and find this is what most people actually when they finally see that dukkha is all pervading in human existence then they think of something better in the language of the western religion paradise angel sitting at the right hand of god or um, having a nice harp to play with or whatever <laughs> this is the the usual kind of i mean it sounds absurd but it still is in the minds of people our actually mind activity is extremely primitive and we have always had geniuses in the human in humanity who got away from that primitivity and tried to show us that there is something that we could really know and if we practice we can and the knowing mind is the one that can then also become enlightened so dukkha is not the unpleasantness which we experience but dukkha is that what we wish that's dukkha all desires are dukkha and particularly the desire to get rid of dukkha that's the biggest dukkha because if we manage for a moment then we find something else to get rid of and if we don't manage dukkha increases and therefore the buddha said only one cause and that's craving and i have already mentioned those three cravings but i will mention them again in this context because it's important to put these things together and besides human memory being what it is doesn't matter buddha repeated himself hundreds of times the three cravings that we have are the basic cause for dukkha all cravings are dukkha but they're the basics and that is the craving for existence the craving for non-existence 
and the craving for sensual gratification. Now the third one, the, and the second one, actually both arise out, this, out of this craving for existence. Because the craving for existence is that this ego person here needs to be retained and protected, and then it turns around into the other kind where the ego person says, everything's terrible, let them see how they get along without me, I'm going to do away with myself. Same thing. And then the sensual gratification arises out of the same problem that the ego person wants the everything to be pleasant. So the, we could actually reduce the whole thing to this one craving, the craving to be, survival. Now obviously, as long as we're not enlightened yet, it's quite good to have a few more years and try to become enlightened, and that's all it's good for, actually. The rest is all ideas, convoluted mind. That's what is good for, to have a few more years. Because when we get, when we come again, and not having had any Nibbana experience, we've got to start all over again. And not only do we have to start all over with all this sitting practice, but have to learn to walk, to talk, to go to the toilet, to eat what's good for us, to go through all the miseries of relationships, uh, to bring up children again. I mean, the whole thing has to be done again until we finally find some time to sit. So obviously, it's much better to do it this time when those first uh, things have been taken care of and one does have already the possibility of sitting. <laughs> and that's what survival is good for, but it's not good for anything else because it brings constant dukkha. So our craving for existence is the ego illusion that this person is necessary because without this person being there, there would not be any awareness of anything. Well, it's of course absurd, because any, everything exists just the same whether we are there or not. But we think that we are important and we need to be here. We make up all sorts of stories about it, why we should be here, because we think of ourselves as an entity. And then all these justification systems have to go around this entity so that this entity does not get to, uh, doesn't understand, doesn't, has no chance of understanding the absurdity of wanting to exist, namely wanting something which is impossible to get. We cannot survive. So we are constantly wanting something we can't have. So how can anybody be peaceful, wanting something that one can never have? Obviously, there's always a chance of being physically killed any time of the day. There are outer accidents, there are inner accidents. And that... Now, wanting something that we don't can't get, namely survival, cannot possibly produce any peacefulness. We can lose our physical life any time, and if we believe in rebirth, and this is a, um, actually an idea which has a great deal of merit for people because they think then, oh yes, well, you know, I'm going to exist again, it's great. You know, I don't have to die. 
The person that is reborn has nothing to do with the person that's dying. The only thing that remains is totally impersonal karma. And you can check that out right now because you don't know anything about the person that came before you. Nothing. Was there even a person? It's conjecture, isn't it? So who knows? When death comes, this person is finished. So we would like to survive. So we have all sorts of uh, ideas how to manage this. And nobody has ever managed. There are far more dead people in the world than live ones. Nobody's ever managed. And we have used technology to the point of trying to make bodies survive that should long be underground. And doing all sorts of um, uh, things in order to even preserve them. So, I mean, it, it goes to the point of absurdity. So this survival syndrome that is inbred in everybody is, the, is an impossibility, we can't get it. And because of the fear, which comes along with it, of course, because we all know we can't manage, we don't have peace. And that's what the human world experiences. Now, once in a while, we forget about this syndrome. Everything goes nicely, you know, everybody talks nicely, everything's okay, you know. So, but that doesn't last long. It's a near nothing but a distraction uh, so that the mind doesn't have to think about that. And that's why I've been urging you, please imagine your own death. It's going to come. You can be quite sure of that. You can have a written guarantee if you like, if that's any good to you. Look at it. Look at least at the, if you haven't got any visualization uh, abilities, so you can't visualize your own death, as, at least look at the fact of it. And then see what there is inside of one that doesn't really approve of this. Nobody approves of their own death. Only when there is that real letting go the real letting go of the illusion that one really needs to be here the ego illusion that there is somebody there now the other way of seeing that this is an impossibility and not worthwhile even considering is when we can see ourselves as a phenomenon and for that it's very helpful to become aware, as we've already talked about, and I will talk about it again, the four mental aggregates. As we watch these happening, we can see ourselves as not an entity that's doing anything, but just as a reactor, not an actor. When we see ourselves as a reactor, some of that ego illusion does go. So the Craving for existence is the underlying factor for all our cravings. And with that craving for existence comes also the craving for the positive states, which I've already enumerated once, and I will do that again now, which are praise instead of blame. Gain instead of loss. 
happiness arising out of pleasant feelings instead of unhappiness arising out of unpleasant feelings and fame rather than ill-fame. Well, these eight, and I've mentioned them before, are the eight worldly dhammas, which means eight worldly conditions. And all of us have all eight in juxtaposition sometimes, this one sometimes, that one, doesn't matter, we get them all. But we are bent and determined to get only four of them and not the other four. But wherever there is light, there has to be shadow. Wherever there is one, there is the other. It's impossible that everybody praises us. It's impossible that we only gain something, wherever it is, whatever it is. There is always loss also. We at least we lose our youth. Everybody does. We can't have it. It goes away. People don't like that either. So they make all sorts of attempts to keep it somehow or other as far as even painting it on is concerned, which doesn't really have any effect. Loss is always there. With gain. We may gain wisdom, but we certainly lose the youth. We may not gain any wisdom. And where there is fame, and that only needs to be very small, there's also the opposite. There's always somebody saying something negative. We are very good at that, saying negative things about other people. So there's always that happening too. And to want only the one side of it and not the other is dukkha. Plenty of dukkha. But to just let it happen as it happens is not dukkha. If there's blame and no identification, just blame, no dukkha. So if we have any kind of understanding of this condition of being a human being, we will recognize the fact that there is constant reaction to outer stimuli from, a, from us, that there is the ability on both sides of getting the positive and the negative and our ability that goes with it not to identify with either one or the other but just to let it rest. There's a very nice story about the Buddha's ability to just let it rest. The Buddha was a thorn in the side of the Brahmins, because the Brahmins were and are the priest caste in India. And the Buddha tried to reform the uh, Brahminical religion, which in those days was not usually called Hinduism, but you can call it Hinduism. It was called Brahminical religion. He was born into it, he grew up in it, and he tried to reform it just like Jesus tried to reform Judaism, which needed it badly. And so did Brahminical religion need it badly. Because the Brahmins, the priests, were 
telling people that all they had to do in order to have the greatest benefits from their lives and have only good results in an afterlife was to pray to the stone gods, pour as much milk and ghee over them as possible, pay a good sum of money to the Brahmin priest who would perform the ritual and everything was fine. No problem. They'd be fine. Of course, the Buddha said none of this has any validity. Um, one has to practice to remove the defilements within oneself and see them clearly and substitute with that which is wholesome. Now, naturally, that's not so easy as pouring ghee and milk over stone gods and uh, not very lucrative for the priests. In fact, it spoiled their livelihood completely. And so they found themselves with less income in the areas where the Buddha preached. So they didn't like him at all, naturally. Somebody takes our income away. I mean, he's, a, he's an enemy and not a friend. So some of the Brahmins, of course, did uh, recognize the validity of what the Buddha taught and actually became his followers. But a lot of them were very much against him. And there's a lot of stories about that, where these come to see the Buddha, talk to him, inquire from him, walk away and never want to see him again. And others do become his followers. Well, this particular one had been a, uh, an opponent of the Buddha's teaching for some time. He was well known for that. And once when the Buddha was giving a discourse, he was present. And while the Buddha was still talking, he got up and walked back and forth in front of the Buddha. Now that in itself, of course, is a great uh, impoliteness when somebody's talking to walk back and forth in front of him. And uh, when the Buddha was catching his breath one time, this Brahmin cut in and started berating the Buddha, saying that he was teaching the wrong doctrine and that he was a destroyer of families because he, the young men of the families would follow the Buddha into the monkhood and so he was destroying the families and he was sowing the seeds of unrest and uh, he was, should be um, expelled from the country. He said all that out loud in front of this big assembly. And the Buddha sat there quietly and when he had finally finished his um, accusations he said to the Brahmin, Brahmin, do you ever have guests in your house? And the Brahmin, of course, was a bit surprised that such a completely unconnected question should come after his uh, impassioned um, hate speech. And he said, of course I have guests in my house. And the Buddha said, and when these guests come into your house, do you offer them food and drink? Do you extend hospitality to them? And the Brahmin said, of course I offer them food and drink. So the Buddha said, and if they don't accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? And the Brahmin said, well, if they don't take it, it belongs to me, of course, it belongs to me. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, it belongs to you. <laughs> and this is what blame is. It belongs to the one who's blaming. You don't have to pick it up. Now, that does not mean that well-meant and politely worded criticism could not sometimes be useful. Feedback could be useful. 
But blame never is. Blame belongs to the one who blames. So one lets it fall on the carpet and says, if you like it, please take it. It's yours. And there is the difference between seeing the eight worldly dhammas as one's own, owning them and having them, or just seeing them as manifestations of human mind, convoluted human mind. I like it, I don't like it. I want it, I don't want it. This one is good and that one is bad. Constant convolutions, all dukkha. The whole thing is dukkha. And if we have this um, practice of mindfulness, of our mental states and content, we can actually examine and find that our basic underlying desire is to be somebody, whoever it may be. Maybe we want to be a little mouse in a corner where nobody can see us. Or we want to be a big mouse, right on top of everything, <laughs> whatever it is. Or maybe a medium-sized mouse. <laughs> but we want to be somebody. We don't want to be nobody. And that's actually what we are. And that is only possible to swallow when we have seen Dukkha for what it is. All-pervading, always present, never disappearing, our best teacher, always along, never taking a holiday, constantly alert to show us what it's all about. We just don't want to see, which is another one of our difficulties. We don't like to see it. But when we have eventually seen it, then we don't have to push against it anymore. And then Dukkha is not suffering. Only when we try to make it into something else, which eventually we can never do in the end, then we suffer from it. But when things are the way they are, there's nothing to suffer. It just is. It's all coming and going, constant change. Nothing remains, least of all ourselves. The third noble truth, I will mention something about it so that I don't have to refer to it at another time. The Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that's dukkha and its end to reach. Now, he didn't have to teach us that we should suffer. He just taught us that it's everywhere. Not as tragedy, but as disquiet because we can't get what we want. We can't be. We're going to not be. So that's the only thing you teach, that there is this dukkha in existence and how we can get to the end. Now obviously, the dukkha in the world which contacts us, by the things we don't like and so forth, is never going to stop. It never has. Why should it now? When they had wars in the time of the Buddha, they had wars in the time of Jesus, they always have, everybody's always having something that they want and they're not getting. So why should it stop now? So the only solution to that problem is, of course, 
that we stop. The one who's having the dukkha can stop. And this is a solution that the Buddha found. When he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in what today is Bodhgaya, he actually expounded in his own mind the Four Noble Truths and attained Nibbana because of that. Because there's nothing that will stop out there. It keeps on going. This is only one level of consciousness and existence. We all know that the universe consists of far more than we have even found out so far. And certainly there's more to it than this little planet. And certainly there's more to it than this one little person that sits on this little planet and is trying to survive by any means. Surely there's more, but we don't want to know about all these things. I mean, let the scientists do that. We are concerned with what we want. And because we can't get it, there is only one way out of that. And that's not only not wanting it, but the person who's there wanting it to realize the truth. And the truth of the matter is what is called in Pali anatta, which is always translated as not-self, but it actually means the non-existence of any substantiality, any core in anything. Now, we cannot find that which doesn't exist, so we can't find a non-self. And that's why I'm constantly urging you to find out where the self is. Where is it? And once you recognize the fact where it is, you will also recognize that it's in your own imagination. So look for it. You can't find the not-self. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. So we can't find something that isn't there. So we must find that which we think is self. So we look at everything of all these mindfulness possibilities to see where is it? What is it? Which is it? But it has to be done objectively without this overlay of belief that we have. The objectivity of mindfulness is that what's necessary. Mindfulness is just looking without any overlay of the belief system and our brainwashing that we've been going on since we were small, giving us a name and saying that's you. Nibbana means the freedom, the liberation. Literally translated, it means non-burning. Ni is non. Nibbana, non-burning. No passions, not wanting. There's nothing to want. Why? Because there's nobody there to want anything. It just is. Does not take away action. The Buddha acted the whole of his life. But no identification with the action just action with that non-burning with that freedom with that liberation comes of course the ability to see clearly as the Buddha did and try to pass that on because the compassion which arises in such a person is unbounded because such a person can remember having had the same problems as everybody is still having and seeing that it's actually nothing so special to get out of them if one could just see things in a different light. From a practical standpoint, 
other than checking one out with mindfulness. In the meditation, there's one other thing that can be done. If we have recognized that thinking is dukkha, that even the movement of the, in the meditative absorption, even the movement, that fine, fine, subtle movement of mind is still dukkha, then comes a moment when the mind recognizes there must be something other than that which is not dukkha. And then it turns away from that which is has known, which has condition to it. Namely, in this case, in the meditation, the concentration is conditioned. The condition for, for the meditation. And turns away from that, from conditioned to unconditioned. That's why Nibbana is also called the unconditioned. And in that, no movement. So the mind leaves behind anything it has experienced and goes towards that which is unconditioned and it has not experienced. Obviously, it has a direction towards something which doesn't know, but it has at least knows in what approximate area it can be found. If if we have never been to Darwin, we don't know what it looks like there but at least we know the approximate direction how to get there. So we take our, we go get going. And this is getting away from conditioned to unconditioned, that which has no underlay and therefore can never change. And that which cannot change also has no movement. So that's the direction. So the mind goes towards that. But that's only possible when the mind has had so much concentration that it is already fairly still very one-pointed so that's from a practical standpoint in what direction this can be found now Nibbana should never be considered and often is actually as a place it's a state of mind that's all just like samsara which is the opposite the round of birth and death it's a state of mind me is a state of mind not me is also a state of mind but it's not an intellectual agreement having given up it there comes a different inner feeling that may be enough on that subject and that are the first three noble truths and the fourth one of course is quite extensive and since it does present the kernel of the teaching the um, interior meaning we will go through the Noble Eightfold Path which is the fourth Noble Truth as we go along right now maybe any questions comments etc yes concerning the Luca in the perception and consciousness not that easy to see easier to see in the thinking process because the thinking process moves but in the in the sense consciousness it's also possible very very uh, um, prominent if there are too many sense contacts then it becomes a lot of dukkha one gets completely um, well even upset by it if there's too many things to hear and to see the mind just wants to escape from all that so if it's too loud and too noisy and too too wild and all that. But in every day, 
uh, mindfulness as we just hear a sound because it may be pleasant the dukkha is not apparent but if it's unpleasant the dukkha is very apparent so the um, the thinking process is much easier to recognize because it has a lot of movement in it but the sense context of course has a lot of movement too so if we can recognize that friction that's caused by movement that is a very sub, very finely toned mindfulness not so easy to see but can be can try and that's more, even a little more difficult than the sense contact but you can try do it see whether you can find the dukkha in it it's all mind movement all of it is mind movement so you can see whether you can find that what else so much goodness, so much information and I somehow had it all stuck in my head and I couldn't move uh, yesterday particularly and then last night when you said not only prepare your body when you sit on a pillow but also your mind and I thought that's so obvious because in my professional life I wouldn't dream of doing things without sitting and that's made all that difference just straight Ah, that's good. Yes, there's always something that one can latch on to and out of all this information that you're getting which is um, of course um, uh, for a person who has had no contact with this an enormous lot you just take what you can handle and let drop the rest just take what take that like this one that particular one prepare your mind okay that was useful use it whatever else you're hearing if it's useful use it if not forget it another time so that's I'm good that you found uh, I'm glad that you found that which was useful anything else see that's unpleasant so that's dukkha if one doesn't know that that's dukkha I mean it's, it's not tragedy dukkha is not tragedy dukkha is that constant movement in the mind which goes here and there and therefore has friction so the um, when we see dukkha only as those things that we absolutely don't want and we have to get rid of and have managed to get rid of a few we haven't seen it then there's no urgency in the mind to get past the identification system anything else Are you swallowing something or? Yeah. Oh, come on. Get it out. <laughs> oh, no. No, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were swallowing your words. <laughs> no? no? Okay. So, I, actually, this morning I woke up and uh, I had this nagging mind and I thought, how is that possible? Because last night I finished up good. Mm-hmm. loving kindness and there is no karma made in, at night so what's happening why is that happening? due to an old pattern or mm. why was it the minute you woke up the mind was nagging at you yes. what was dissatisfied like, like uh, I don't want to meditate now 
um, well, that is not, yeah, well, it's a negative state, but it's not necessarily anything that is um, detrimental. Sometimes one has to give the mind a bit of leeway. If I have, I'm comparing that to teaching or training a puppy dog. You see, if you constantly are after this puppy dog and hitting it with a newspaper, if it doesn't behave properly, it's going to jap and yell and be quite unhappy. But if you once in a while let the leash go a little longer and let it, you know, do its business whatever it wants to do and then pull again, it's much better. So if the mind says, oh, I just don't want to meditate right now, well, give it something else. Offer it some other thing to do. What can you offer it? You can offer it contemplation, you can offer it uh, introspection, you can offer it just looking at the scenery out there, you can offer it all sorts of things. Yeah, but it was worse, like... Uh, oh, it was worse. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to get up. <laughs> oh, well, that's the third hindrance. Then you just say to the third hindrance, good morning, third hindrance. <laughs> There you are. You just tell the surgeon, don't say very politely that you are recognizing it and that you know its name and uh, that you actually don't approve of it. Oh, and yeah, uh, I know what I have to tell him. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there was no reason for it because I finished up nicely. And oh, yes, there's always reasons. Oh, we always have reasons for the, our five hindrances. Just being a human being is enough reason. Right. That's enough reason. We don't need any particular reason. Yes. <laughs> being a human being is enough. That's the reason for all our hindrances. Sure, and then when you recognize it and saying, oh, there's this great hindrance, you know. And when you see it, and you say, well, but I don't have to give it a home. See, it's a great hindrance, but I don't have to give it a home. It's, um, it exists, and being a human being it exists, but it doesn't have to have a home right inside of me. Why don't I send it to some other room? <laughs> so you send it out the door <laughs> and tell it to just get packing <clears throat> it's quite fun actually to have these conversations with oneself because one gets amused about one's own difficulties you know it's uh, if one doesn't keep a sense of humor when you practice it becomes very tedious and it becomes uh, a little uh, yeah, sometimes even upsetting because one can see the hindrances and all that. But if you think, you know, if you make it a little funny, it's okay. <laughs> but don't send it to me, thank you. <laughs> I don't want it either. <laughs> okay. <laughs>